Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new monthly edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes today. American Funds Distributors, Inc. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. I'm Stephen Carroll at the Bloomberg New Economy Gateway Europe event at the Powers Court Estate, just south of Dublin in Ireland. We've been here for the past few days having some really interesting conversations about the big issues facing the continent of Europe. And we wanted to bring you some highlights from those interviews in this special podcast. Let's start with one of the most important people in Europe when it comes to tech regulation. Helen Dixon is Ireland's Data Protection Commissioner. She's the point person when it comes to enforcing the EU's data rules for the big US tech companies. You have an absolutely massive job in enforcing the the gold standard of global data protection rules, GDPR, the EU rules in this area. Give us an idea of the scale of the work that your office does in terms of monitoring these big names in tech. Well, the scale of the job is vast. Exactly as you said, the form of one-stop shop that was set up under the GDPR means that the regulator in the country in which uh, a company is main established is the lead regulator for Europe. I suppose because we're English-speaking in Ireland, we have uh, a young workforce, and Ireland attracts many of these companies. We have, by default, uh, at the Irish Data Protection Commission, ended up with the lion's share of responsibility and work Uh, under the GDPR. Uh, You named out uh, some of the big companies that are located here, but also smaller platforms are located here, like Dropbox, Salesforce, that are are less spoken about. Um, So on, on a daily basis, the role of the Irish Data Protection Commission is both to handle complaints from individuals, often about these platforms that you mentioned, but also to look at the more systemic issues, to look at breaches notified by the platforms themselves to us, but also to look at media reporting, academic reporting, issues that come to light through other regulators that that may need investigation. So at this point in time, we have over 20 large-scale investigations uh, ongoing into various aspects of the different platforms. We're looking at issues like data protection by design and default in terms of how the the platforms are engineered. We're looking at very technical issues like legal basis that's been used. We're looking at whether there's transparency to users. I should say the GDPR is now coming up to five years in application. Last year was the biggest year for enforcement of the GDPR to date. Probably not a surprise as some of the large-scale investigations come to conclusion. Of that uh, record year for enforcement last year, two-thirds of the enforcement was delivered by the Irish Data Protection Commission across the EU, UK and EEA, over a billion in fines levied. So that gives you some idea of the scale. And of course, it's not all about enforcement either. Is your office a match for some of the richest companies in the world? 
We are a match for the richest companies in the world and we've demonstrated that through key cases that have already been concluded and through litigation that has already happened. You'll recall that my office in 2016, on foot of a long-standing complaint about this issue of EU to USA transfers Mm. of personal data, made an application to the High Court seeking a reference to the CJU, which we obtained in order to have the CJU rule on the validity of the legal instrument that was being used. And all along the way, we saw Facebook challenge the DPC right up to the Supreme Court on that, and we succeeded. So we we are a match. Of course, it's a never-ending battle, and 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 the scale is vast. You've raised concerns in the past, though, about the resources that your office has to be able to do that. Is that issue being addressed? The issue is being addressed uh, year on year. The government has granted us more budget. So, so the issue isn't necessarily a commitment to budget. It is around um, absorptive capacity when you're increasing the size of a very niche specialist organisation like the Data Protection Commission. And it can be around the availability of resources. So we found innovative ways as the years go by, as well as expanding our staff now to over 200 experts that we have directly employed. We've also put in place contracts for services so that we can draw down in particular state-of-the-art technology and forensic services as required in investigations. And that's sensible because it means we're always up to date. I want to ask you about some of the investigations that you've been working on. Um, TikTok's processing of children's personal data. Has there any progress made agreeing with other EU member states on a penalty for that? Uh, No, there hasn't, but I suppose we've come to a point of certainty that we cannot reach agreement with the two, and there were only two data protection authorities that objected to elements of our decision on that, uh, a, a German authority and the Italian authority. We spent several months trying to reach uh, a point of agreement and consensus with them. We have uh, not achieved that, so we have now invited TikTok to make its submissions on the objections so that we can transfer the file to this dispute resolution mechanism under the GDPR. So we'll have a a final conclusion on that in in a, a short number of months. That was Helen Dixon, Ireland's Data Protection Commissioner. So from regulating tech to funding it, Elaine Coughlin is the co-founder and managing partner at Atlantic Bridge. They have a billion euros in capital under management and investments in 100 companies. After the financial turmoil of recent weeks and the backdrop of higher interest rates, we've been discussing the investment and funding landscape for European tech companies with her. Your focus is technology. Um, A lot of the sectors that European countries are very interested in now, the likes of semiconductors and quantum computing, how much have those sectors been affected by the downturn that we're talking about more broadly in the economy? Well, absolutely there has been, and in fact we're probably more than 12 months now into the uh, slowdown and a downturn in the technology industry, but you're absolutely right to highlight sectors, so it is not across the board. Uh, what I would say is about two years ago the biotech industry started to have quite a, a, a pullback in terms of valuations post-COVID and also you know, d- uh, investment, and technology obviously with the, you know, with the fangs etc in early 2022, and that in private markets fed into, or in public markets fed into the private markets. But uh, a lot of it around consumer, uh, B2C tech, obviously social media, you know, e-commerce, all of those uh, sectors that got a massive uh, run-up uh, through COVID. If you look at the fundamental technology sectors of foundational technologies, quantum, uh, semiconductors, um, uh, uh, cybersecurity, uh, those areas actually have performed very well and there's still a lot of investor demand. So, uh, 
it is a tough market. Uh, the, 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 the difficult equity markets last year, followed by now, as you said, the SVB um, uh, collapse has definitely dented confidence. And uh, so now we have, you know, a difficult uh, uh, situation in raising both equity companies have both raising equity and debt. Yeah. Um, so, so, so it is in the short term a difficult market. However, in the nearer term and the longer term, I would be very positive because of, for those particular sectors that we just talked about, uh, because of the involvement of new entrants into the market, which uh, across Europe is government, and also in the in the US. Which uh, is interesting because you think government funding is going to squeeze businesses yeah. like yours yeah. if you're the one who would in, in traditionally have been involved in, in fundraising or, or investing in these companies. Are you being squeezed out by government money? Um, no, far from it, because I think the fundamental problem, which sometimes it takes a crisis or a catastrophe uh, for, for us to, to make the right decisions, but if you look at historically in Europe, European companies, great research, great research institutions, great educational institutions, some of the top universities in the world, all in, in, in the EU and in, in the UK, uh, but where we've struggled is in scaling up those companies. And the US out-invests us by four to one in all of those companies. So for every, every dollar we put into the companies in Europe, the US is putting in four. So if you add up things like the EU CHIPS Act and the Green Deal and the EIC programmes and the climate programmes that the EU has brought out, in the last two years alone there's about 1.5 trillion of capital that is going to be deployed over the next five to eight years in these sectors. Um, and that is going to make a phenomenal difference to the development and scaling of companies, knowledge intensive companies in Europe, in those sectors, and of course we now have supply chain resilience as a key concern, mm -hmm. strategic sovereign autonomy in key sectors, uh, these are all really important. So uh, the government uh, uh, involvement, along with the private industry, along with industry, is going to mean that Europe has a great chance of building but, champions. But can, yeah, but can those companies be international or European-wide champions? Because we've, we've traditionally seen, particularly in the tech sector, companies having to go to the US to expand beyond a certain level. Is that going to change. I think if companies and founders have access to capital within Europe for that scale-up piece, uh, it will be less uh, essential, I suppose, for them. Right now, they've no alternative uh, because a lot of, if you look at the size of the VC markets, uh, Europe has actually dramatically improved over the last few years. The, the US VC market is about 233 billion mm. and we almost crossed 100 billion in Europe for the first time last year. Can I briefly ask you about listings? Yes. We've been talking a lot about mm -hmm. ARM, for example, choosing mm -hmm. to list in the mm -hmm. US rather than the UK. Mm -hmm. Can that change? Are companies always going to have to go to the US to list? It's a fundamental part of the problem in Europe. Um, I think ARM is a symptom of a much deeper, deeper problem that we have in Europe. And uh, uh, Minister Pascal O'Donoghue, our finance minister here and Eurogroup uh, president last night, spoke about capital markets union and the banking union uh, that needs to happen in Europe. So if you look at London, um, losing uh, ARM, if ARM does not list in London, it's somewhere between a 30 and 70 billion market cap. Mm. Uh, I think that'll be a terrible loss for the UK and for Europe, a semiconductor company with probably the deepest pool of IP and talent in the world um, and, and if we look at companies like CRH and Flutter there's been a, a, a trend, right? Yeah. Uh, but to, can to it be stopped? Well I think we will have to uh, deepen the capital pool in Europe, we will have to encourage pension funds, pension funds in the UK used to own 40-50% of pension funds owned UK equities that's now 4 or 5% okay. so I think there will have to be uh, government uh, changes to the regulation and to the ability for these pension funds and local investors to take risk. Right now, US investors, it's a different, deeper capital pool. They understand growth and they're willing to pay for it. So okay. 
European companies get higher valuations and they get investors that understand growth and that are willing to back them. That's Atlantic Bridge's Elaine Coughlin there talking about the challenges Europe faces in scaling up its tech sector. Our next guest, Pam Cheng, is the Executive Vice President of Global Operations at AstraZeneca. As a key figure in the rollout of the COVID vaccine, she sees the global supply chains in a different light after the pandemic and had some interesting comments about investment prospects in the UK. Obviously, your business has had a transformative couple of years because of the rollout of the COVID vaccine. How different do your supply chains look now compared to the, they did three years ago? Great question. So first of all, hello, Stephen. Thank you for having me here today. I think, you know, I think we can all agree uh, coming out of COVID-19, the world is a different place, right? And, and particularly as we continue to weather unprecedented challenges like the war in Ukraine, and the geopolitical tension, we are in a very different place. I'm a believer that global and open supply chain is critical um, for, for, for our business, right? So if you look at the importance of trade, innovation, and technology, that's made us a, a more connected and more interdependent world. And I don't think that's gonna go away. I do think that post um, uh, COVID-19, as we kind of emerge in this new world, moving forward, sort of the term of re-globalization, it's gonna take on some new rules by some of the countries and key players around how to maintain some sorts of control, bringing back control, as well as making sure that we continue to open the doors for trade, to make sure that we don't stifle that innovation. So today, our supply chain largely hasn't changed that much. However, we are taking steps to make sure that we are increasing supply chain resilience because in the end of the day, in life science and pharmaceutical supply chains, we, we are talking about patients' health, right? So we want to make sure that our supply chain continue to be resilient. In terms of agility, obviously you had a massive production shift to produce your COVID vaccine. Do you have now an ability to do something like that again? What have you learned from that experience? And I think the prerequisite of that is having a global and open supply chain environment. That's a perfect example why we cannot localize or regionalize medicine supply chains, right? I mean, we commercialize, we develop and supply over 3 billion doses of COVID-19 vaccine. We supply over to 180 countries, two-thirds of which are low and middle-income countries, and not to mention at no profit during the pandemic. We would not have been able to do that if we had local and regional supply chain and were unable to kind of leverage that scale and capability and resources globally. We had supply chain in Asia, in Latin America, North America, in Europe, for example, that kind of pulled together to make this happen. You announced just about 18 months ago that you were going to locate a $360 million manufacturing plant here in Ireland, um, something that was controversial in British political circles because they had hoped to be able to attract that investment as well. What's the latest update on that Irish site? So, so we the final decision was to site it in, um, in, in Ireland, co-located with our Alexion manufacturing facility in College Park. Um, siting of a pharmaceutical medicine or, or facility is a very complicated decision, right? It's, it's not just about tax, it's not just about the financial implications, it's about the resources, the capability, which is very, very important, and the operating environment, having that friendly operating environment, and with Ireland's sort of operations climate around focus on climate change, focus on green energy, focusing on capabilities, and, 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 and you the couldn't overall, find that in the UK? Uh, yeah, part of it you can, but I think we look at the total package. And if you look at the financial implications along with all the things I've talked about, this is what's, this was the right place what for this facility. What could the UK do? I mean, you mentioned tax there as well. That's something that your CEO mm -hmm. had highlighted as a reason for locating Correct. that plant in Ireland. What could the UK do 
to better attract businesses like yours? I, I think we've publicly said that we, you know, we, we would like the UK government to really drive, sort of focus on innovation, value innovation, um, act faster around innovation and some of the regulatory means, and, and really give incentive to drive for companies to be driving that innovation, initiating that innovation within the UK. Does that mean financial in incentives? Uh, it could include that, not only financial implications, but it can include that. But the more importantly is that overall operating environment. Okay. Um, on a more broad issue, where what is AstraZeneca's view of COVID-19 now? Is it something that is still a large portion of your business is focused on? So we ha have a new um, therapeutic category that we've uh, um, called vaccines and immunology that we are looking into. Um, as you know, above and beyond the COVID-19 vaccine, we also have an antibody for the immunocompromised um, population. So we continue to work on that. We continue, we have a, a large research pipeline in looking at continued vaccine for the next pandemic or the next evolutions of, 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 of COVID-19 or similar, as well as antibodies for the, for the immunocompromised patients. So we continue to do that research such that, God forbid, if, should there be a need, we are ready um, to, to support. That's AstraZeneca's Pam Cheng there. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new monthly edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes today. American Funds Distributors, Inc. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Now, one person who is very much related to the trade aspect of that conversation is Denis Redonnet. He is the Chief Trade Enforcement Officer at the European Commission, responsible for enforcing the EU's trade deals with the rest of the world. Are, are you the person that trading partners need to be scared of when it comes to doing business with the EU? Oh, I don't think it's a matter of being scared. I don't think we want to be punitive, closed. Or, or, for that matter, uh, protectionist in any way. That's not in the EU's interest. What are we trying to do? What we're trying to do is, is are two very basic things. One is we want to make sure when we negotiate trade agreements, trade treaties, uh, we maximize for all firms in all member states the potential benefits from those agreements. And, and that requires engagement with third country partners. A trade treaty is a piece of paper. You need to inject some life into it. And yes, indeed, where necessary, we have to ensure the compliance by our third country partners of their commitments. Uh, and there, from time to time, we have to be assertive in ensuring that compliance of commitments. Uh, so we, we you continue to basically have a policy that stands on, on three legs. One is openness. Mm. Second one is sustainability, because that is important for Europe. And the third one, yes, is a form of assertiveness that enables us to navigate uh, a world which is a bit more adverse, a bit more fragmented in some cases, in certain jurisdictions, a bit more protectionist against the EU interests, and we need to push back. We don't hear from you very often uh, when it comes to your role as Chief Trade Enforcement Officer. I'm wondering, in this role, which of the EU's trade deals do you kind of generates the most work for you? What sort of issues are you working on? 
Look, we have a, a vast network of free trade agreements, probably the biggest in the world. Uh, uh, we have some 46 trade agreements with 78 partners. So that requires constant attention to make sure that in all these jurisdictions, EU firms, EU investors are basically not being discriminated. So we're looking, of course, at some of the big uh, markets uh, around the world uh, where we have a relationship based on WTO terms, the US, China, but we're also looking at all of these preferential agreements, including in our neighborhoods, close to the European Union, where we make a lot of trade and we make a lot of investment, and where it is necessary to maintain our footprint uh, on a, on a non-discriminatory basis mm -hmm. and ensure that the rules-based relations that we have with these countries is upheld. Can you give us an example of, of some of the enforcement actions that you have been involved with in some of those recent trade deals? Well, look, we, 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 do, we use a continuum of, of tools, right? So in some cases, it's about being preventive. It's about engaging with third country jurisdictions, even before they take uh, measures, regulatory measures that are going to create discrimination or create a market access problem for our firms to make sure that that doesn't happen. And that's the kind of market access work that you will not actually see, but it is the most effective. We solve problems before they actually emerge. In some other cases, we have recourse to the dispute settlement, the enforcement mechanisms uh, that we have uh, under our trade agreements or under the WTO. We keep using the WTO dispute settlement. We have prevailed in a number of trade disputes that we have, and that's the civilized way of dealing with trade problems, state to state. We have recourse to third-party adjudication to clarify what is the nature of the commitments and therefore to solve uh, the problems that we may have in, 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 in one or the other jurisdiction. We have uh, prevailed, for example, at panel stage uh, this week in a dispute with India over uh, their tariffs in the information and technology area. That is important. It's a basic commitment. We believe that countries should abide by their bindings in terms of tariffs, and this is why we have decided to adjudicate this in a WTO dispute. One of the things that we talk about when we talk about regulation made by the European Union is the Brussels effect of how it sets standards for the world. I'm interested in how the trade aspect of relationships enforces sustainability and labour standards. Is that something that's difficult to enforce when you're dealing with very diverse regions in the world? Well, obviously it is difficult because you do get issues which are deep behind the border and have to do with production methods and standards. So it is complex. But we basically on sustainability, achieve sustainability in our trade relations in, in different ways. First, through the trade agreements, you're right. We have trade agreements that have ambitious, binding provisions in the area of labor, in the area of environment. And we're putting a lot of focus on the actual concrete implementation of that through primarily cooperation. We also have autonomous instruments in the EU, uh, carbon border adjustment, deforestation legislation. This complements what we can do in trade agreements. And, and finally, I think we must continue to engage in international regulatory cooperation. Yes, the Brussels effect plays, it is important, but we cannot export wholesale to the world our regulatory models. We also have to engage with third countries in order to make sure that they converge voluntarily uh, in these areas uh, and avoid, therefore, trade and investment frictions. I wanted to ask you about your work in terms of um, sanctions and Russia since the, the invasion of Ukraine. It, from a trade point of view, what sort of work have you been involved in there? 
So the trade sanctions are an important part of the economic sanctions that uh, we have taken in the face of Russia's aggression against Ukraine. You, you have to realize that we have, in a sense, severed our, our trade links uh, to the tune of about 50% of what we were exporting to uh, Russia pre-war and perhaps 65% of what we were importing pre-war. So it's a significant deintegration, decoupling of our relationship with Russia. And it is having an impact because what it is doing is it is degrading the capacity, the military, industrial and technological capacity of Russia over the medium term and therefore its ability to continue uh, to wage uh, its war in Ukraine. So the trade sanctions on the technology side through export controls in particular uh, on trade uh, are playing their role as, a, as, a, as an element of our response. So there you have it, from data protection to venture capital, supply chains to trade regulation, the gears of the world economy are turning to adapt to new challenges and geopolitical challenges here in Europe as well, as well as, of course, those new opportunities like artificial intelligence. Thanks for listening to this special podcast. I'm Stephen Carroll at the Bloomberg New Economy Gateway event in Ireland. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash FutureInvestor slash radio.